Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Thank you guys for coming and listening to the number one vetpreneur podcast in the world. Thank you so much. Today, we're going to be talking about transitioning because that's the biggest thing I find with veterans that are struggling with their mental health issues is they're, they're dealing with a lot of stuff with transitioning. So our friend of the show, Rage Garofolo, is going to come talk to us, and we're going to find a little bit about her, but then she's going to talk to you about helping you transitioning and have an amazing transition out of service. Rage, what's going on? How are you? Hello, hello. It's so awesome to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I know we've been playing uh, tag back and forth with different scheduling things, but we finally got it going on. So how's everything going? Everything is going really well. It's a little crazy busy at work, but I did manage to schedule a little playtime in October and November. So I've got a couple of carrots to look forward to. Nice, because, you know, like, you know, of course, you always say that. You know, you cannot pour from an empty cup, so you got to keep on refilling that cup somehow, right? Absolutely. It's the only so, way. So talk to us. Tell us a little, little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, uh, where you grew up, and what kind of little girl were you? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'll give you kind of the cliff notes version. So I grew up um, in a suburb outside of Chicago, um, and... I have three brothers, so I have a stepdad, so I've got um, an older stepbrother, and then I've got uh, a younger brother, and then I have a twin brother, and so I was the only girl, which at times was kind of fun because I got away with probably a lot more than I should have, um, but I, I think that I was the closest with um, my twin, and then with my younger brother. And where did you grow up? What what town? What state? Uh, I grew up in Glencoe, which is thirty minutes north of Chicago. Okay. So, what was school like? And were you a good student? I was. I was a decent student. I wasn't like a member of Mensa or anything, but I. You know, if I applied myself, I did well. Um, but mostly I was more interested in whatever my twin was doing. So whatever he was doing, I wanted to do. Um, so I was I was such a tomboy growing up. My, my poor mother, like she wanted to have a, a daughter that she could dress up in dresses. And I wanted no part of it. You know, she wanted to put me in dresses and I had shorts on underneath hanging upside down from the monkey bars. You know, I would go dirt biking and, you know, playing floor hockey with my brother and his friends. Like, there was nothing girly about me. Now, you were born in Caracas, Venezuela, correct? I was, yes. Have you ever gone back? No, and it makes me a little bit sad that I haven't had the opportunity. But the political climate has, has been for such a long time unfavorable to Americans, and especially Americans that you know, have any amount of money in their pocket. So, um, unfortunately, I haven't been back. Now, were you a good student while you were in, in school? 
I was okay. I wasn't, you know, anything to write home about. I wasn't um, Mensa by any stretch. But, you know, if I applied myself, I did okay. Mostly, mostly Bs. Now, were you, because I found, you know, I found out as even as I get older, that um, a lot, most leaders are big readers. Were you always, were you a big reader? Oh, absolutely. I, even in the summertime, I would sit up in my room and, and read. It was my opportunity just to to escape and to find someplace else and, you know, almost reinvent myself as, you know, I could be Nancy Drew or I could be, I could be any, any character I wanted, depending on the book that I was reading. So yes, I read voraciously and, and I still read. I think I've got, I'm reading, I'm in the process of reading like three books at, at one time right now. So what did you want to be when you grew up? I initially, I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but I was talked out of that. And then the older I became, the more I found that I really enjoyed writing. And so I chose to, to major in um, journalism when I went to college. Okay. You know, like when I was growing up, my, my favorite superhero was always Aquaman. Because I always wanted, I always wanted to go talk to fish and be a marine biologist. And my son, he's now a sophomore at Coastal Carolina. He's actually going to school to be a marine biologist. So that's what touched my heart the first time we talked. Um, I think that's pretty amazing that you 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 did that. So how did you go from what you wanted to go to school for? to what you really then wanted to move to and do? So I, I didn't actually um, pursue my degree and a career in marine biology, but I, I had wanted to for such a long time. Um, so the, the long and, and short of it was, um, I had, so I had a bachelor's in, in journalism, but I didn't have a lot of science in, in my background. So I had to take a lot of science classes just so that I could um, meet the requirements for the program. So I did that. Um, so for all of the prereqs for a marine biology program, I took it at my local community college when I was in Boston. I got straight A's um, throughout the program. And I was working with the admissions office at MIT for their program. And they were trying to set me up so that I had all of the prerequisites needed for the program. And I met them all, but where I fell short was um, through my GRE testing. Like I'm just a horrendous standardized time tester. I just, I suck at it. And so my GRE scores were not enough to get me into MIT or BU for that matter, for their um, marine biology program. So I talked with a program out here in California and they had initially looking at everything, given me the verbal, yeah, it looks really good. I, you know, I think that you, you would be able to, you know, get in and, you know, submit your package and we'll go from there. And so I heard that as a, we'll accept you and come on out. So I packed up my, my car and all of my earthly belongings, drove out to California and long story short, I did not get in because of my GRE scores. And so then I had to figure out what, what was going to be next for me. And I was able to get um, an, 
like a, an informational, like what we would call now a cup of coffee with John McCosker, who is one of the world's leading marine biologists and his specialty is salmon. So he, um, his, he's focused on the, the preservation of uh, the salmon population in North America. And he essentially told me what, what the reality of being a marine biologist was gonna be like. So your son probably already knows this, but you know, you're living grant to grant, you're sharing a house probably with four or five other scientists and you're not going to be out on the dive boat, you know, tagging great whites. Most likely you're going to be in a window, windowless lab somewhere taking notes or reading or, you know, whatever it is that you're going to be doing. And um, there was a point when he was talking about grants and, you know, there's only a, a finite bucket of money for research grants. And he, you know, it, very nice, nicely and respectively um, respectfully said, you know, the bottom line is you're going to be competing for grants against people like me and I'm established. So most likely I'm going to get the funding and you're not. And he said, so you need to be thinking about what that's going to be like living, you know, paycheck to paycheck with six other people and, you know, trying to hustle for research grants. And, you know, having been in, in college and right after college where, you know, you're living kind of check to check and living with a roommate and having to navigate all of that. I kind of thought to myself, is that really what I want for the next 15, 20 years? And how long is it going to take to establish myself as a marine biologist? And so I, I made the difficult decision not to pursue that. Um, and I kind of did a, a pivot looking to see what, what I would want to do um, instead and that's how i ended up um, in counseling psychology which in a circuitous route led me to research which is where i am today i know so, that's a really long-winded story i apologize no that's what that's this whole this whole time is just for you to get your story out there and to help others so now having to pivot like you said is very important especially in these days of covid so how did you pivot did you sign up for another school to go to and so and how were you supporting yourself while you're going to school so i was working full-time at a biotech um, a small little startup and that's how i so i worked during the day and i went to school at night um, and you know after i decided not to pursue marine biology i sat and thought for a long time about what what was interesting to me? What did I feel that I was good at? What was going to propel me out of bed in the morning? And now I think, you know, everybody ties that to your why. What is your why? At the time, I didn't have a word or a name for it, but I knew that it needed to be something that really spoke to my values and what was important to me and the kind of person that I wanted to put out there in the world. And I found that um, counseling psychology, surprisingly, felt like a really good, comfortable fit for me. Um, and so then I, I ended up applying to schools and, um, you know, completing the, you know, a program out here. So now you went to um, starting to help adolescents with, uh, that were grieving over losses, deaths and stuff like that. So what was that like to be able to, you know, just sit down with it? Because a lot of people don't realize I mean, I didn't know we were going to go here with this conversation, but it seems it's coming up a lot. 
I've dealt now with a couple in our family, teenagers that are dealing with uh, mental health issues and stuff like that. And, you know, on average, 5,000 adolescents attempt suicide every day in the United States. But it's very near and dear to my heart. So what was it like being able to help these kids that were struggling? The long and short of it is it was really a gift because kids, they don't trust adults right away. And, you know, I mean, nor should you. Trust needs to be earned, not given. Um, but the fact that, you know, over time, you know, all I'm doing is spending an hour a week, you know, with, with some of these kids. So I only get them for a small snippet of time. Um, but over time, they really grew to trust me and open up to me and to be able to help them navigate, you know, their feelings of grief and loss and understanding what those feelings mean and that it's normal. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to be angry at, at the person who, who died because you feel like they, they left you. And it's okay to be, um, to be sad and, you know, even for no reason, you just think of something random. And it's okay that you have a good day. And if they don't pop into your head that day, that's okay too. That's part of being able to process and, and move through it. Um, so it was, it was really very special working, working with my kids. But uh, you didn't stay with that. You kind of moved on to something um, more, more, even more important to my heart. Um, so talk about what your next move was. So my next move was um, moving into clinical research, which I kind of fell into by accident. Um, so while I was doing my um, my master's program, I was working with two clinical psychologists who specialized in working with cancer patients and worked on a, a psychosocial study with uh, newly diagnosed women um, with gynecologic cancer and looking at whether incorporating therapy into the overall treatment plan um, had any impact on, um, on the outcome of the treatment and the, um, the patient's um, perspective and, and, and their outlook. And it was going through all of the results that the patients provided and you know, getting my fingers deep into the data that I really started to enjoy um, the research part of what I was doing and then working for the biotech, you know, doing, you know, getting more and more involved in clinical trials that we were running. And I ended up sticking with it. And so I've been doing, you know, clinical trials, you know, for over 20 years. And I work right now in the oncology space, um, which is very near and dear to my heart. And I I honestly, I don't think there's a single person out there who hasn't been touched by cancer in some way, shape, or form. So it's very personal, I think, to everybody, you know, myself included. And in some respects, that's that's my why is being able to make an impact, knowing what it takes for a patient to get up and out of the house in the morning just to get to, you know, a hospital for treatment. Um, so you know, the time and the you know, bodily fluids that they give us is equally a gift. And I, I truly mean that. Well, I've had a, a bunch of, a bunch of family members that have dealt with these issues. 
And I have one person that I really love that she's going through this right now. Uh, but you know, I, I find, you know, um, cause my dad is, I mean, he's a male, so, but it's, you know, He's going through a, a cancer bout, but his mindset is so much more positive, and it's more. Um, he, he he's a man of faith, and he eats right. So it seems like a lot of the people that I've talked to that have gone through you know different cancers, a lot of it is mindset, mm-hmm. a lot of changing behaviors and changing um, different lifestyle habits. So can you talk a little bit about that, if you've noticed anything like that? It's, it's really different for every patient that goes through it because they're, when you say the word cancer, no matter what stage or phase it is, you hear death sentence. Mm-hmm. And so you have the opportunity and the choice it's always it's never quite as, as easy as it sounds, but you have the choice for how you're going to approach it. You either want to fight it and do the best you can and, and live to the fullest with you know your friends and family, or you marinate in the and wallow in the self pity and just think, why me? Why did this have to happen to me? Um, and you know, in some respects, both are are okay and normal because you know you're you're being forced to look at yourself and your life in a completely different light. And in some cases, there's a clock that's ticking and it's, it can be overwhelming to figure out how to process all of it. Um, and so this is where having a really good treatment team is, is so important, not just the oncologist, but you know, like a palliative care physician that's part of the team that can help you manage pain and a dietitian, because if you're, receiving radiation, your palate is going to change. So foods that you love now could end up tasting like garbage, you know, six cycles into radiation. So is there somebody that's going to help walk you through all of that and give you different strategies and, um, you know, other food ideas so that you can still have some level of enjoyment? And, um, you know, I I think that the treatment team is, is critical and the level of engagement of the treatment team is critical to um, to helping the patient have the right mindset. Now, having been around it, you know, you said uh, over 20 years, has it given you appreciation for life? Like for my, for me, you know, my dad sat me down and we talked a couple years ago. And when he told me that, you know, every day is a gift and to be present in everything that you do, it gives, gave me a new lease on life. Has it changed your mindset knowing what you know? Yes, wholeheartedly, yes. I'm, I tell my husband probably six times a day how much I love him. And I text my younger brother all the time and tell him that I love him, which sometimes he thinks that I'm a little crazy. But yes, I tell everybody I love them all the time. Um, and then I'm thinking about them and that they matter to me because you're right. Tomorrow is not promised on any scale. And, um, I've learned not to take advantage of right now. You know, and so now you got to tell me because now we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects is I love my veterans. 
Um, I'm a veteran. I didn't do anything cool. Um, yes, you did. Oh, don't ever, don't ever minimize what you did, tank commander. Oh, but yeah, whatever. But, uh, you know, I love, I love my special operators. I love my Navy SEALs, Delta Force guys, because they're totally different than what you would think they would be. You know, like one of my friends, John McCaskill, we were joking around one day, you know, you know, as I was interviewing for the show. And I said, you know, I look at you and I don't see a Navy SEAL. I told him, I see my accountant. You look like, you know, you, you, <laughs> you know, because you look so smart and, you you know, you look. He, I always pictured a Navy SEAL as a guy that's like six foot five, 250 pounds, three percent body fat. You know, that was what I always pictured. And most special operators are some of the smartest and most humblest people that I know. So how did you get involved with the special operations community? So it kind of happened organically and a little bit by accident. Um, I got involved in the transition space um, when a friend of mine, her son deployed to Afghanistan right after 9-11 and did two tours. And I forget what his actual title was, um, but his role was he was an interrogator. And so when he came back, um, at the time, you know, the, the amount of organizations and the types of organizations available to veterans, you know, when they transitioned back really were in its infancy um, and there wasn't a lot out there. And so she and I um, just worked really hard and tapping deep into our LinkedIn networks to figure out who we knew that could help him in, in every kind of facet for his transition so that it wasn't quite so bumpy. Um, and over the course of time, I um, signed up for, to be a mentor with, um, with an organization called eMentor um, that focuses specifically on, you know, helping veterans and active duty service members transition. And I started doing that and occasionally I would have um, either a ranger or, uh, you know, a team guy cross my path. And as I talked to them, you know, I recognized that they're just, they operate at a different frequency and they needed to have, you know, not that, that they need to have different types of, you know, guidelines and, um, you know, transition information, but just in a way that there, there are some differences um, with special operators that you might not see um, with, with somebody else. And so I think I had like, it was like the third team guy that had crossed my path. And so I was trying to do some research to figure out, all right, where there has to be organizations geared towards the soft community. And that's when I found the Honor Foundation, um, which is a transition, um, kind of like a transition institute. It's a three month program, but it's geared towards Navy SEALs and special operators. And so that's how I, I got involved with the soft community is I had reached out to Phil Dana Shout out to Phil Dana, um, who at the time was the, the VP of People Ops, you know, for reached out for a cup of coffee and 30 minutes turned into, you know, an hour plus conversation. And then we just stayed in touch. And, you know, I slowly but surely came on board as a volunteer working with him on the mentor program. And then, you know, my my work with THF grew from there and, you know, subsequently within the soft community. So now, 
I find, you know, like I said, I'm just a, a lay a lay person. Um, but I have done over 350 interviews. And a lot of veterans, they get out, male and female, because now it's a, a good mix. Um, you know, once they get, you know, get discharged or retire, um, you know, like one of my friends says, his name is Sergeant Nick. He always said that once you step off the base, the military does not give a shit about you. Your phone stops ringing. You don't have a mission anymore. You lose your teammates. And even though, you know, what Navy SEAL, special operator, you know, we still get coddled a little bit. You know, we get used to getting paid on the 1st and the 15th, getting TRICARE and getting all this other stuff. And now you don't have any income coming in. So now you lost your job, you lost your mission, and you lost your friends. And now you're totally alone. Is that what you see in a lot of transitioning issues? I see any number of them. And I, I've heard that almost verbatim, that the, your phone stops ringing. Um, especially since I know um, a lot of members of the soft community often have two phones, you know, one for work and then their personal, and then they turn in the work phone and then all of a sudden things go very quiet. Um, so I, I, do, I do hear that. And I also recognize that, you know, if you're not remaining in, in a hub where you've got your, your tribe like San Diego or North Carolina or Virginia Beach, for example, then, you know, the transition can be really daunting. And my big thing is when I'm working with um, the men and women who are transitioning, one of the things that's really important to me to understand is if they're looking to relocate when they transition out is what kind of social support do you have? Who's there? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it your spouse's family? Who's there to be your social network? Because you can't, you can't be there by yourself. And so depending on where they're going, if they're going for a job, but they don't have a family connection, then what I will try to do is tap into my network to find out who do I know that lives in that area that can be a phone a friend, somebody who just gets it when you're having a crap day, or you know, if you're getting frustrated about something, somebody who understands the path that you're walking. And so I, I think that that's, that should be one of the, the primary, not the primary, but I think it needs to be one of the considerations when you're transitioning is if you're picking a geographic location that is outside of where your current tribe is, make sure that you've got a social network to plug into because otherwise it's it's daunting and it will impact your, your ability to have a positive outlook on your transition. I love that. Now, you know, I've, I've talked to psychologists on the show, therapists, um, some people that are dealing with that deal with mindfulness, you know, John McCaskill, doctor, uh, you know, a bunch of doctors. And, yep. And uh, Will Schneider and all those guys. But now a lot of people that come home, especially if they've been deployed multiple times, they come home and the war, they left the war, but the war didn't leave them. And they come home and they're struggling with their own demons. So now, not only do they, you know, there's can't, or they're not getting a job, but now they're struggling with their own personal health. So what, how, if somebody needs help, what is something they can do to start dealing with those demons? 
Because if they don't deal with those demons, the demons are going to end up dealing with them. I know. You know, that's that's such a good question. And I, you know, having lost two very special people to suicide myself, I, you know, the, the no-brainer, low-hanging fruit answer is you want them to talk to somebody and get help. But the reality is that, you know, anytime somebody utters the word suicide, um, there is so much weight to that word. And anybody who's feeling that way, you know, for them, they don't want to lay that burden on somebody else. So a lot of times they don't talk to other people because either they, they don't want to upset that person, that loved one, um, they don't want to scare them. They don't want to burden them. They already feel like a burden as it is and don't want to, you know, create any more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't, they don't want to, you know, just add more to, to their plate. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because those are exactly the types of conversations where any family member, any friend, would would absolutely lean in and wrap their arms around them and say, I've got you. I've got you. Um, but it's just, it's that initial ask and recognizing that you're not a burden when you ask for help. It's not a weakness. We, we want to be there. We don't want you sitting by yourself with, you know, a bottle of pills or, or a gun. Like, we don't. And so I think part of it is getting past the, the stigma of, suicide and, and taking your own life and feeling shame around that because, because it, it's not shameful. And one of the things that really bothers me about it, there's two things that bother me about it. The first is when people say, you know, you've committed suicide. Well, suicide is not a crime. What they've done is that they've taken their own life. Um, and, and the other piece is really just not feeling not feeling shame around it people need to you know not i think people need to back off when they say suicide is selfish and you know you're you're doing this to all these people who are left behind and to those people i want to say you've never experienced a suicide in your life because to me suicide is not it's not selfish it's it's almost what they're trying to do is to unburden everybody else because they feel like what they're going through is insurmountable and they need to get off the ride and it's not selfish it's i'm i don't feel like i'm adding value anymore and i'm done and so i think we need to shift our perspective on on what um on what suicide looks like so that we can talk about it so that you don't feel shame in reaching out for help and saying i i need you Okay, so now, because I, I love this whole um, topic on transitioning, because it's where I see the most issues. Now, like, I find that when guys and girls get out of the military, like, when I was in the military for 23 years, um, I was a tank commander. You know, when you get out into the civilian sector, there's not many people looking for tank commanders. So. You know, when when you're writing, we're writing resumes, a lot of us, you know, because we just fill out what we know, you know, we so we're putting in all kinds of acronyms. And sometimes the people that are at the um, 
that are hiring going through the resumes, they can't make heads or tails of it. So they just throw it to the side. So what are some of your suggestions on, you know, getting a job after the military? Because I think if we feel like we have a job, we have a and care of our families, we're, we're doing okay. But if we can't do that, that's when I, I see it gets kind of dark. So what are some of your things that you suggest? So, you know, you say tank commander. I say attention to detail, problem solver, critical thinker, and leader. Because they don't just hand over the keys to a tank to just anybody. And if they did, then I would like to get in line. So I think it really goes back to having the support to translate your experience into um, into a job description, into like a you know civilian speaks, so that some so that a hiring manager, somebody who doesn't have exposure to the military in different roles, can understand exactly what you bring to the table. So, you know, if if it's just tank commander, not everybody's going to understand what that means. But if you can translate all of your experience in terms of what it took to get there and how you you maintained your your ability to be a leader and a subject matter expert in certain areas within being a tank commander, leading your teams, being part of a team, you know, having to make decisions on the fly with less than perfect information. All of these skills are incredibly valuable in the business world. Okay, so now I have another question. Um, you know, a lot of us military personnel, uh, we don't realize that when we go overseas or we get deployed, that our families get deployed with us. And they're left home sometimes having to do double duty. You know, I talked to a, a, a um, military wife last week, and she said, you know, the stress is doubled on her because not only is she raising the kids now, but now she's handling all the finances. Right. And, um you know, like when, when we're overseas, you know, we know, all right, we have a job to do. We know the enemy. That's our job. And we can focus on that. But when, like, my wife, she's my bride, my, my best friend, and she deals with me and all three of my kids and the, the household bill and everything. Um, so without her, this world would not run in, in my eyes. So talk to us about the military spouse and what they go through when somebody's deployed. So I, you know, from what I've been told, you know, when, when a spouse um, is left home after her or his spouse deploys, is he or she becomes the de facto CEO of the home. And they take on everything, you know, from managing the kids to the household, the finances, and in some cases, you know, having to move. So he's deployed and she's packing up the house and the kids and having to move to a new base or a new location. Um, so there's a, a great deal of responsibility that's put on the spouse, irrespective of whether or not the, the active duty member is, is at home or deployed. Because even when they're home, there's a, probably a good chance that they're, um, that they're working a lot and going through a lot of different um, you know, high tempo trainings where they're not home or available anyway. Um, so they, the, the spouse takes on you know, a much different role. And in some cases when 
I'll just for, for just the ease of the conversation, we'll just play it out as um, it's the man who's deployed and, and the wife that's at home. Um, but you know, he comes home from deployment and she's got the household running like a well-oiled machine. And sometimes it becomes a little bit of a challenge of how do you plug him back in so that it, it's not disruptive to, you know, to the overall dynamic and rhythm. And I think that's what I hear a lot more is having to negotiate how to plug him back in. Um, and then on the other side of the transition, I always like to make sure that that the the guys that I'm working with understand or the women that I'm working with understand that their spouse is transitioning too. Because while you're living on base or, you, or you're plugged into your community and your tribe, you have that support network and everybody, you know, works together, talks together, um, and you have each other to rely on if you need, you know, whatever. And if, when you're transitioning, well, they're transitioning too. They're losing their network. They're losing their rhythm, their, their routine, especially if you're going to be relocating. So I always like to make sure that the spouse is plugged into the transition activities because, because they're part of it. Not only do they have to support their husband or wife with it, but they also have to understand what the transition is going to mean for them as well. And then where can they find the support that they need? So it's yeah. really complex, which I'm sure that I don't have to tell you, you lived it. Yeah, you know, and, and I uh, and I kind of not saying, you know, I, I wasn't didn't wasn't married and have kids when I was deployed. But, um, you know, I, I find that, you know, my friend Ben Colloy has a great podcast called The Military, The Military Dad. And um, he gave me some great advice. He said, because I, I was working retail for a long time and everybody knows retail sucks. You know, I was working every night and every weekend for like nine years while my, my daughter was, you know, was a baby. And I missed out on all that time. And I said, you know, how do I make up for that time? And he said, you can't. He said, all you can do is start today yep. and spend time, even if it's just 15 minutes a day. Saying, all right, honey, whatever you want to do for the next 15, 30 minutes, we'll do. But I think a lot of times, you know, like you said, a husband will come home and try to fit back into the family dynamic too quick. And then there's nothing but turmoil, you know, because my wife, you know, the wife will be like, wait a minute. You know, I've made all the car payments. I've paid all the bills. We haven't been late once. And now you want to take it, take it over again. So I think you have to start, you know, um, going back very slow. And to work your back, not because like I talked to General Petraeus and one thing I, we talked about is I think that when we when we get deployed, we have a three month train up. And I think that when we um, come home, we need a three month train down. What would be your thoughts on that? I can't say that I disagree with that. I think that. You know, it's the, the same premise around transition. You know, the, the military spends hundreds of millions of dollars to train you. But then when it's time to transition out, they give you like this bare bones caps class and say, good luck, which, you know, is laughable. And I think that there needs to be more 
more resources available for the men and women and their families. And exactly, and to have that trained down of how do you how do you switch gears? Because you you can't just turn it off, you know, the moment you walk through the front door, you know, once you return home. Like it's it's a process. And you know, a lot of service members don't know how how to make that switch, don't have the tools you know, emotionally and intellectually to make that switch when you're with your family, when you're in, you know, such high, high tempo situations. So I, I would, I would agree that you need something like that. Okay. So last two questions I have, um, how do we find you? How can we get in touch with you and how can we work with you? And most of all, how can we support your mission? So I, anybody who wants to to get in touch to talk transition, I will geek out with you all day long, every day. Um, ping me on LinkedIn, um, send me a message and we'll connect. Um, I do a lot of work with, um, with the Honor Foundation as a mentor and a coach. Um, and I'm also really involved with the Navy Special Operations Foundation, which is a wonderful organization geared towards supporting the Navy EOD and diver community. Um, and I focus on transition with um, the EOD techs and divers as well. So um, I, I'm available. I'm happy to help and think out loud with anybody who wants to start thinking and planning about their transition and putting together a plan to, to get you where you want to go. Uh, okay, so last question. Um... You know, we live in a very volatile world right now. We're, we live in a COVID world. A lot of parents lost jobs and they're driving for Uber, DoorDash. We got grandkids, homeschooling kids. So it's kind of stupid out there. But if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it because we live such a crazy lifestyle. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody's listening to this podcast right now and they're struggling positioning back or they're getting ready to get out of the military, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to see some clarity and start putting a plan together? They can reach out to any number of organizations. So you can try um, the Commit Foundation where they will work with you um, on your transition and helping you in, in any kind of capacity, whether you want help with your resume or developing your LinkedIn profile, um, learning how to do mock interviews. Um, they will set you up with a coach and you'll be able to work through um, all aspects of your transition, no matter where you are. Um, you can also reach out to American Corporate Partners um, also known as ACP, and they are a mentoring program, and they'll connect you with a mentor in an area that you're interested in, um, and you and your mentor will then work through a plan for, for your transition. Um, you can also look into the Honor Foundation if you're a special operator, um, and you can always reach out to me directly um, and say, I am looking to make a trans my transition and I would love some help. I love it. So guys, if you're listening to this, please share this with somebody that might be in that same situation. Um, leave a comment below if um, 
we'll get back to you if you have any questions or any issues. And um, th if you guys do leave a comment or leave a review, we're actually um, doing a special giveaway. I can't tell you what it is, but it's very big. And it's all you have to do is leave a review or a comment. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, this is going to go out next season. So um, I think this is going to help a lot of people. And I just want to say thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I so enjoyed talking with you. Well, have a blessed night and God bless you. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And, and it, will, it will get you moving in the morning. So guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.